in preparation for Pastor Mark's message today. He's asked me to read from Philippians chapter 4. We'll be starting at verse 14 and going through the end of the chapter. If you have uh, no Bible of your own, you can take the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 1141. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we know that the entrance of your word gives light, so we pray that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that any darkness within us would be dispelled. We pray that you would show us your ways through your word, challenge us, Lord, where we need to be challenged, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Assign us to some important work that you have for us if there is need of that. May your word motivate us, inspire us, inform us, and be a blessing to us today. And we pray likewise for Pastor Mark that um, his uh, message would go out as light that would penetrate the eyes of our heart and it would be like a laser beam into our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Bill. As I get started, I'd like to first of all thank Ron and Helen for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, I really appreciate your approach, and I appreciate you, and so thank you for, for leading us in this way and providing for us in this way. Thanks to Bill for standing in for Bruce and uh, also reading the scripture text and praying for us all. Um, it is an aspect, I wasn't going to start like this, but it is an aspect of Parkinson's that your voice can be affected and even um, effectively lost. Uh, and this morning is the first time I've really felt like that was part of what was going on with me. So pray for me. This, it may just be something else, but um, my voice feels to me inside my own body as it's quite weak. So, um, so I'd appreciate your prayers as we continue on. I'd like to begin this morning with a couple of questions. It's basically the same question, 
asked in two different ways, or, or, or perhaps as it applies to do two different areas of life and ministry. Here's the first iteration. What animates us as a congregation? Another way of asking that might be, what motivates us as a congregation? Or if we take the long view, maybe, what has kept us going all these years? I want us to be thinking about that this morning. What animates us as a congregation? What motivates us as a congregation? What has kept us going all these years? Here's the second iteration. What animates you, me, us, not as a congregation, but as individuals? So that's a different question, where it's the same question asked a different way. Why do we do what we do? Or what do we hope to accomplish by being who we are, doing what we do? So these are some questions that I think will be relevant to our message all along our way here this morning, and I'd like to um, ask you to kind of continue to process those throughout. So that's the first question, considered from two different but related aspects, the individual and the congregational. Now, I'll ask a second question that gets more at our title, text, and topic for this morning. It'll, it'll also, in a sense, evaluate our answers to the first question. You ready? Does what motivates God motivate us? Do we do what we do for the same reason or reasons God does what he does? Is our accepted reason for being, that is, our understanding of our reason for being, is it consistent with God's expressed reason for creating us, namely to bear his image and represent him on the earth? Does what motivates God motivate us? As you can see in your bulletin, the title of our message for this morning is For the Glory of God, the Good of God's People. And the Good of God's People. I know that's ambitious, but by the end of our time here this morning, I hope you'll agree it's straight from the Bible and even more profoundly, straight from God's heart and his intention for us now and into our future. And since it's straight from the Bible and God's heart and intention, can we see a way for us to also adopt the purposes God has chosen for himself, for his own glory, and for our good? I think it'd be wise for us to pause here to note that only God can seek his own glory and not be a malignant narcissist. God is not a malignant narcissist seeking his own glory because he alone is God. There is no other. He is God and he is eternally glorious in his nature. Because there is only one true and living God who is altogether glorious in himself, he can and he does seek his own glory and he is altogether sovereign, loving, holy, righteous, merciful, just and glorious already, and we may enter into and even add to his glory in Christ Jesus. Truly, whatever contributes to God's glory, whatever leads us into his glory as his people, accrues and will always accrue to our good, both our temporal good, that is, our temporary good, but also our eternal good, 
Whatever glorifies God is good for us, and whatever is good for us glorifies God. This is the purpose and the goal to which God has committed himself from eternity past to eternity future, because this is who he is. He is eternally glorious, and he is eternally good. This is the why of God's sovereign and saving activity, for the glory of God and the good of God's people. That's why God does what he does, and he invites us to join him in this. Indeed, the very reason for our existence is to join God in what he is doing on the earth. If we are to bear God's image and represent him on the earth, we'll be being who he's created us to be. And we'll be doing what he is doing on the earth as his good stewards. So before we get into it, this is just the introduction. So before we get into it, here's a, a summary statement of the Bible, I think, from beginning to end of God, all of God's activity in history, in prehistory, and in post-history, on the earth and in the heavenlies. It's also our central truth of the message for this morning, printed there in your bulletins, but here it is on the screen. Everything God has done, that is, in the past, everything God has done, everything God is doing, that is, in the, in the present, now, and everything God will ever do in the future, has been, is, and will be accomplished in Christ Jesus for God's own glory and the good of God's people. Now, you'll notice I put a bracket around God's because I'm going to suggest an even better word in that little space in just a few minutes. Everything God has done, everything God is doing, And everything God will ever do has been, is, and will be accomplished in Christ Jesus for God's own glory and the good of God's people. So once again, have we as individuals committed ourselves to that which God has committed himself? If we're going to image him and bear his likeness on the earth and represent him, then it probably follows that we'll be doing what he's doing for the reasons that he does it. Have we as individuals committed ourselves to that which God has committed himself? Have we as a local congregation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ committed ourselves to that which Jesus gave himself, namely to the glory of God, to the good of God's people, and specifically into, for, and through the church, which is made up of all peoples under God's sovereign grace? We only need to read and process one very familiar verse to see or show how this is so in the Bible. Husbands, love your wives. That's a good thing. That's not the part I'm talking about. That's a good thing. It's a good, it's a good start. Keep washing dishes, Manny. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is that our conscious reason for being? God's glory and the good of God's people? Is that what animates and, and, and motivates us as individuals, 
and as a congregation? Are we actively moving forward into Jesus' sovereign future for us in purposeful unity and in furtherance of this two-part singular goal, God's glory and the good of God's people? If not, why not? With Pastor Yuri's vision document, and we still have a couple of copies there on the table back there if you haven't seen it, but with Pastor Yuri's vision document in mind, it occurs to me that it might be well worth our time, attention, and energy to consider what might become a substantial, even transformative change to our vision statement into something that even more reflects God's vision for us. Our current vision statement is building into God's family one person at a time. I like that. I helped write that. I supported and advocated for its adoption. It occurs to me now, it might be too small. It might be too small. How about for God's glory and the good of God's people? I think that's better. We might even want to expand it a bit more for God's glory and the good of all people. These are just suggestions. But Bethesda, if we would unify purposefully and unswervingly, I love that word from the reading last week, unswervingly around that singular two-part purpose, which actually summarizes all that God does or will ever do in Christ Jesus, what changes would we need to make in order to get in step with that? What sort of traditions or programs or emphases might we let go for this purpose? What emphases Traditions and programs would we need to keep or recover in order to pursue this purpose together as one body? For God's glory and the good of God's people or for God's glory and the good of all people? Well, that's our introduction to a massive and profoundly important biblical Christian truth. So how are we doing so far? If we can demonstrate from the Bible that God's glory and the good of God's people, even all people, ought also to be our purpose, could we unify around that? Could we consciously, deliberately, and truly glorify God and work for the good of all people? Well, before we make that biblical Christian case, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Let's let's pray for just a moment. Lord... I pray that for the rest of this time, you will lead us and guide us, that you will speak. Even through my weak voice, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would speak to us your grace and your mercy, your love and your instruction. We thank you for all that you have done in Christ Jesus, and we thank you for giving us a clear, a clear record of why he did what he did. And he gave himself up for the church because he loved the church even before it came into existence from a historical point of view. Thank you, Father, for making us part of your church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we will continue to be faithful, that we'll continue to be steadfast and strong and committed to that which you have committed yourself and give ourselves to that which Christ gave himself. Thank you for all the ways that you have provided for us, and we ask that you would continue to do so even today. In Jesus' name.
Amen. If God is being glorified, whether by us or by others, whether in the past, the present, or the future, if God is being glorified, then God's people are being benefited. It is for our good. It is to our good that God be glorified. It's equally true that if God's people, any people, all people, are truly being benefited, that is, if the eternal good of all people is being advanced, then God is, by definition, being glorified as well. Now, there are at least two very predictable and difficult very broad and biblical, very historical and Christian realities related both to God's glory and the good of his people. First, the glory of God and the good of his people is often brought about by way of self and group sacrifice. Significant suffering, even martyrdom. Before, say, the 20th century, sacrifice and suffering and even martyrdom were much more commonplace for most Christians than for today. Well, there was a relatively brief period, say from, 23, from, from 323 A.D. to 600 A.D. or so. Historians don't, don't get too particular there on me. But for about 200, 200, 250 years, something like that, when Christianity emerged as the official religion, religion of Constantine and later the Roman Empire and, and so sheltered it from serious danger or persecution. But that hasn't been the norm for Christians or the Christian faith for the other 17 or 1800 years or so, both before and after that period. The church has lived mostly in hostility to its environment. What is truer today in non-Western parts of the world has been the case for most of Christianity, most of Christian history, rather. Christians and Christian churches have not historically been from the politically powerful or the moneyed class. Indeed, most Christians for most of Christianity's history have been mostly in the bottom classes, both politically and financially, as well as in other ways. And this reality seems to be the ongoing biblical expectation of true Christianity. But over about the last 150 years or so until today, beginning here in North America, I'm sorry to say, and spreading like wildfire in parts of the third world, a religious sort of worldly status and trappings of wealth are hailed in the church, by the church, as signs of God's favor. We cannot find this in the Bible, not if we take the whole Bible and apply it to the whole Bible. And this is the most obvious indictment against the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel, as prosperity preachers get rich largely on the backs and out of the pockets of their poor constituents who are hoping for deliverance from what? From from their poverty. That's also true here in North America, especially in large cities where there are large populations of lesser educated, poorer people. But mostly North Americans are already rich by historical and world standards. And so we often take that, our richness, our power, as God's intrinsic favor. To this, John the baptizer might have a great case against God to get his head back. 
If health, wealth, and prosperity are the goal and point, what was the cross all about? Why did even why did 11 of Jesus' apostles end their ministries by giving their lives for the gospel? Christianity without sacrifice and suffering is a Christianity without glory, a denial of God's ability to save and sustain us, and a betrayal of Christ's submission, sacrifice, and suffering. In other words, it's no Christianity at all. It's empty religion in pursuit of worldly gain, and this, unfortunately, is increasingly the condition of the church in North America. 2 Timothy 3.12 is a challenging verse, especially for us who don't have to worry about real persecution or particular hardship because of our faith. But the Spirit still says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have I ever been persecuted for my faith? Not according to my definition of persecution. Not according to the persecution happening in Nigeria today. So what does it mean that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Well, someone must go to take the biblical Christian gospel to the unreached people group that won't have its first convert for a generation or three. Someone must pray without ceasing for God's grace to extend to peoples he nor she will ever know. And someone must stand on God's word and in the power of Jesus' resurrection in the midst of a declining church. Someone has to do it and it will be costly. It is costly. As Bill noted and shared with us earlier, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. There are a couple of organizations that uh, participate or, or have uh, driven this International Day of Prayer. One of them is Open Doors International. Another one is um, um, uh, the ministry uh, concerning the martyrs in uh, the world. So Christians and churches all over the world are pausing to pray today, just one day, for more than 360 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ living in over 60 countries where they experience some kind of hostility as a result of proclaiming the name of Jesus or simply living out their faith. In its annual World Watch List report, Open Doors reported that over 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith in the, two, in, in the 2022 reporting period. 90% of which occurred in Nigeria alone. New Open Doors US CEO Ryan Brown highlighted concerns that the West is continuing to delve deeper into a post-Christian culture as it can be easy for those not living under persecution to become consumed with the busyness of their daily lives. But the Christians facing discrimination for their faith serve as an example to Westerners of refusing to limit their faith despite the culture they inhabit. Finally, the Christian Post article that I'm referring to here concludes, The resilience and unwavering trust in God displayed by our persecuted brothers and sisters serve as a testament 
to the enduring power of Christ in their lives, and I would add, and in the life of his church. How about us? Do we know that we're resilient because it's been tested? Can we say that we're unwavering because we've had opportunity to waver? So selflessness, sacrifice, suffering, and not a few times martyrdom, as I just mentioned and as Bill mentioned, more than 5,000 just in Nigeria in 2022, and 1,000 more in the first three months of this reporting year, 2023. And these are costs of such acts of obedience to God's word to us. Take the gospel where it's not known. Stand for truth when it's crumbling all around us. All of it brings glory to God and good to all people. Now our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 4, my first two verses. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The promise of this text, indeed the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we go from doing the best we can in this world to God supplying all that we need, both for this life and for the next. And here's the catch. According to God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That sounds better than I can do. That sounds better than the best we can do in this world, in this life. To me, anyway. So get this. If this God of the Bible, if this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if this God of Israel... If this one true and living God and Father of Jesus Christ, if this God of the gospel, and if we can say this God is my God, as Paul does here in Philippians chapter 4, and he is truly our God, then we can know and be confident that all the promises of God belong to us. The door to God's provision is open. And that's one of our fundamental truths for this morning. God's promised provision for his people is, quoting here now, to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, at first glance, and if we're not careful, this could feed into a health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel. But it's nothing of the sort. Let's notice two things here. First of all, the explicit and unqualified promise here is to supply all of our needs. Needs. That is, what we need to follow Jesus. Not our wants, not our dreams, not even the North American dream. God does not become our cosmic genie making all of our dreams come true. This is not about us, it's about him. And when he promises to supply all our needs, that is all that we need to follow Jesus. Secondly, the resource here is God's riches in glory In Christ Jesus. 
That is, from God's most glorious provision and his most glorious triumph, which was what? Which is what? Which will always and forever be what? God's most glorious provision is the cross. That's the source from which God will supply all our needs in Christ Jesus, according to his riches and glory. The cross. So if the one true and living God is our God, and if his Son is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, and if his Spirit indwells us with the power of his resurrection, that we can know and we can claim and we can count on his promise and his provision, now and forevermore to what? Supply all our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So our first fundamental truth for this morning is God's promised provision for his people is to, quote, supply all our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Our second fundamental truth for this morning is this. We bring God much glory if and when we depend upon him to live according to his promise and provision for our every need in Christ Jesus according to his riches in glory. In other words, we bring God much glory if we live as if his promise is true to us, as if he'll provide for our every need to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior wherever he may lead and truly wherever he might go. The first thing that must be said in this clear biblical truth is that God does not have a resourcing problem. In other words, not only does he own all the material resources in the universe, but he can make whatever we need ex nihilo by the power of his word. Now that phrase is one that you should get acquainted with. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. It's the same way that God created all that there is. That he created from nothing everything that is by the power of his word, ex nihilo. And he can make whatever we need out of nothing by the power of his word. He does not have a sourcing problem. Okay, so that's the theology. Here are the very practical biblical Christian terms of the promise. If God hasn't provided it, then we must not need it yet. If we think we need it but don't have it, Yet, then we must pray for God's timely provision. If we have it, but don't need it yet, then we must wait and look for God's intended use, turning it loose freely and by faith when God reveals his purpose for what he's already supplied. We bring God much glory if and when we depend upon him to live according to his promise and provision for our every need in Christ Jesus, according to his riches in glory. Finally, number three, our third fundamental truth for this morning from this, from this passage and truly the whole Bible. When we live this way, that is, as true disciples of Jesus Christ who comprise a, local, a true local expression of his church depending on him, when we live, live this way, we bring God even more glory. 
It sounds crazy that we can bring God glory, but that's what the Bible says. In fact, we're to live in all ways to the glory of God. But living this way, depending on God to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, brings God even more glory in Christ Jesus because his grace is spreading and it brings us more good. Good as the Bible defines good. Good as we, children of God, will perceive it as good. It also brings him much glory because it will stand, we will stand, in stark contrast to the world around us, even the so-called church in our day that is failing into disrepair. To depend on a God to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus is nonsensical to the world outside. It's fundamental for a biblical Christian, born again by God's Spirit, bought by Jesus' blood. But it takes courage. It takes faith. It takes hope. It takes deliberate choices for Jesus and against the worldliness around us, even the worldliness in our own hearts. And it takes perseverance. One of the reasons it's so hard today, whether for us as individuals or as a congregation, is that we've lost perspective, both historical and eternal. What I mean is we've lost the sense that the Christian faith and the Christian life are and always have been hard. It's always been hard until like yesterday. Jesus said, in this life or in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I will overcome the world. I have overcome the world. The Christian life and the Christian faith has always been hard. But today, when something is hard, our assumption is almost always, well, we must be doing something wrong. If we weren't doing something wrong, it wouldn't be so hard. Is that not what we assume today? And it's made its way into the church. But no, the biblical Christian truth is, if it's not hard, if it's too easy, then we must be doing something wrong. Because the Christian life has never been easy to live. The Christian ministry has never been easy to deliver. Why? Because the Christian faith and Christian life are intrinsically counter to our very selves and also to the world. Which is to say it is and it should be hard. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. But believing in the crucified and risen Christ, living lives that honor him, also glorify God, such that we can also say with Paul in the spirit of Christ, from from the last part of verse 20, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Even if we die. 
Even if he slays me, yet will I praise him. Where's that sort of faith today in North America? So let's be encouraged this morning. Let's leave this gathering of Jesus' disciples and, and, and go out into the world in faith and hope, knowing that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Amen? That's pretty weak, but I'll say amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we do thank you for the pioneer of our faith, Jesus Christ, who went before us, and we are following him into the fray, into the fight, into the battle. Help us to understand, Lord, that we are your people. We are not our own. We are your people. And our greatest joy ought to be knowing you and serving you and following you and sharing you with others. And looking forward to the day when we will meet you and be with you for the rest of eternity. Lord, we... We pray, though, that we can take on today, in this life, on this earth, an eternal perspective that sees you providing for our every need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that we can say with the heavenly host, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Before I read the last couple of verses from Philippians chapter 4, I want us to get in our minds the Nigerians that are living under the oppressive conditions that they have right now. I want you to, I want you to picture Nigerians in Nigeria. I've never been in Nigeria, but I can get a picture, I think, maybe. Or North Korea or China, or Myanmar, or India, our friends George and Jenny, right? George and Jenny Samuel in India. Or folks in other places where it is dangerous, even life-threatening, or maybe just difficult and painful to just be a Christian. Maybe here in Winnipeg. And I want you to picture those people for what they are, for who they are. And the Bible calls them saints, holy ones of God set apart for his purpose. Verses 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. These are our brothers and sisters abroad and perhaps even around the corner who need our prayers, for they are our brothers and sisters 
their fellow saints. And verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. See you next time.